1: It's the other side of midnight with Frank Marano. Out of the tree of life, I just picked me a plum. You came along and everything started into hum. It's a real good bet The best is yet to come Best is yet to come And, babe, won't that be fine You think you've seen the sun But you ain't seen it
0: shine This, of course, is the dulcet tones of Frank Sinatra... Uh, Frank Sinatra's opening act, and he could have had probably anybody open for him in the world. Any singer, any comedian, any juggler, any entertainer in any field. Uh, But he chose for years to have his opening act be the one and only Tom Dreesen. Uh, Tom Dreesen is not only... One of the great comedians of all time, not only one of the great storytellers of all time, including many a story about Frank Sinatra, but he also is one of the few people in the entertainment business that it seems like almost nobody has a bad word to say about. And uh, he is a legendary stand up comic and the author of a terrific memoir called Still Standing. Kind enough to stay up late with us tonight. Tom, it's great to talk to you again.
1: Thanks, Frank. That was a nice introduction. But I want to explain to your audience, you know how you become a legend? All my critics are dead.
0: (laughs) Well, there's something to be said for that, Tom. Something to be said for that.
1: I outlived them all. (laughs) All those who dislike me are gone now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That'll do it. Hey, uh, Tom, let me first ask you about um, the story today regarding uh, Jay Leno. Uh, Kind of a sad story that Jay Leno was um, hospitalized after a car fire. I think uh, Jay Leno is very well known as a a car guy, a guy that loves to tinker with cars, a guy that loves to drive all sorts of motor cars, and now he's recovering from some Pretty serious burn injuries following a gasoline fire. You have been on The Tonight Show both with Johnny Carson and Jay Leno. I imagine uh, you and Jay as uh, fellow stand-ups go back some time. I've noticed Jay's reputation among some stand-ups isn't always the greatest. I'm curious what your your feeling of Jay Leno is in general and what your interactions uh, with him have been like over the years.
1: Okay, first let me say that I, I talked to uh as soon as I heard about it. I was playing in a comedy golf tournament today, you know, that we, uh, uh, where a bunch of comedians get together and uh, in fact, Bud Friedman's daughter Zoe started this and uh, it it's 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 to help comedians that are struggling or having a tough time. So when I heard about it, I immediately contacted people that I knew that that knew Jay and, and his secretary and everything and said, "Give me all the scoop that he is saying" that he's fine, he's okay, he's gonna be okay, but he's gonna be in the hospital for a week. But Jay always downplays things. He always, even no matter how serious something will get, he'll try to downplay it. So I'm hoping that he's that he's, he's fine, you know. Uh, he was working on one of the cars. As for people who don't know, Jay might have 400 and something cars in, in a couple of hangers, as well as 175 motorcycles and uh i've I've gone to a tour uh uh, my girlfriend uh lives in arizona even though i live in california and she puts on classic car shows and she always wanted to see jay's museum of cars so i called him one day and he said "Yeah, come on over and he gave her and i the tour i'm not a car guy but uh one of the mechanics told me there he said jay works on these cars as much as we do. He knows as much as we do about cars. This is a top mechanic. They actually even built the car from scratch, you know. So uh, he's always fooling around with them. So evidently he was fooling around with the, the engine caught fire or something. He had like a gas explosion. So I'm, I'm hoping that he's all right. I think they're facial burns from what I mm. gathered from the people around them and that they they I think he's going to be fine, you know. Did
0: you tell and, a story? Uh, go ahead, please.
1: I would say – and to go back, I, I met Jay Leno. When I was with a comedy team, Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team. History shows were the last. We we were, In those days, there were no there were no comedy clubs, so we worked all black clubs in the north and the south and all white clubs like the Playboy circuit. So I was working uh, – Tim Reed and I were working up in Boston. And a friend of mine, a comedian named Mike Preminger, brought this young guy uh, named Jay Leno, who had big glasses and a, and a hat, and he was smoking a pipe. <laughs> he had been in the business about four months when I met him, you know, and uh, we've we've been friends ever since.
0: Did you tell a story about uh, Jay Leno getting hit by a car during a strike in 1979?
1: Yes, it's in the book that it's in the book that I wrote, Still Standing. Uh, and The subtitle is My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. Uh, And and it's also in a book called I'm Dying Up Here. Uh, A guy wrote it uh, about the comedy store Strike, a guy named Bill uh, Needleseeder, K-N-O-E-D-L-S-E-R. It's a book called I'm Dying Up Here, and they end up doing a a comedy series based around the book. Mm. Um, But what happened was is that we we were on strike because they weren't paying the comedians at these comedy clubs uh, like the comedy store. So we went on strike against the comedy store. And after about six weeks, it looked like it was going to go on forever. uh, 18 comedians, 18 guys and one girl crossed the picket line. So the club was able to stay open while we walked the picket line. You know, David Letterman, me, Jay Leno, you know, um, a lot of the comedians. And it looked like it was going to last forever. And one night I had to speak before Screen Actors Guild and after they were having a big meeting out here. And I had to give our side of the story. And Mitzi Shore sent a couple of uh, the comedians over to give her side of the story. So we had a debate, and the Screen Actors Guild voted that night that they were going to support us and take a full-page ad out in Variety and the Hollywood Reporter, and asking all the actors and actors in Hollywood <clears throat> to honor uh, us and not to cross the picket line, uh, you know, under the comedian strike. So uh, when upon hearing this, one of Mitzi's um, Loyalist who spoke at the Screen Actors Guild debated me. <clears throat> he came back to the comedy store, and all the comedians were out in front picketing, and Jay Leno being one of them. Well, there was a driveway there alongside the comedy store that still exists, and this comedian was racing his engine, racing his engine, uh, trying to get into that driveway, waiting for the traffic to go by. and. I looked and I saw them standing in the driveway. I said, hey, get out of the driveway, get out of the driveway. And just then you hear tires screeching, and this car went flying in there uh, to try to scare these guys. But we heard the thud, and then the car went by, and Jay Leno was laying on the ground. And mm. the girls were screaming and screaming, and, and I said, oh, my God, my God, he hit Jay. I, and we didn't have cell phones in those days. I told him, you know, get somebody call an ambulance, call an ambulance right away. And I, I was so, at that point, Frank, I had been six weeks on that picket line. I was touring with Sammy Davis Jr. at the time. I had to turn down work with Sammy to complete this job. I had lost it, and I made up my mind when this guy gets out of the car, I was going to throw a punch at him. I I boxed when I was in the service. I'm not the toughest guy in the world, but but, but, uh, this time my – Italian, I'm Irish. Italian, the Italian side got to me, and I, I, I was going to nail this guy, but I knelt down first. Jay's laying on the ground, and everybody's crying and screaming. The girls, cry, and I looked, and Jay looked up at me, and he winked at me, and he laid his head back down. <laughs> come to find out, Jay, when the car went by, Jay stepped aside, but he hit it with his hand, and then he fell on the ground. But I didn't know that at the time, you know. So now the ambulance has come. <laughs> And, and you know, and, and and the guy gets out of the car, and the girls are screaming. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. He runs inside, and and uh, and Jay didn't want to go to the hospital now, but there's a, a rule that when the ambulance comes, they can't release you. The hospital has to release you. So they took Jay away in, a, in an ambulance, and uh and, and the the uh, owner of the comedy store, Mitzi Shore, sent somebody out to get me and said, <laughs> "Come on inside. Let's settle this strike right now." So that
0: <laughs> so uh, J- hey, Jay's uh, Jay's. Seven. Sacrifice uh, might have actually brought an end to that strike. That's uh, that's pretty great. Um, one of the stories that I covered earlier in the week was some comments from David Zucker, the director of Airplane who said that the jokes in Airplane, the film Airplane, which was only 42 years old, would not fly today. And he's essentially saying that whatever you want to call it, wokeness, political correctness, is ruining comedy today. Is that something that you agree with as somebody that still performs and is more active than almost any comedian I know? Do you think wokeness is having a deleterious effect on comedy today?
1: Oh, absolutely, and and it's and it's been around for a long time. Lenny Bruce went to jail for it, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it's it's it, but it's gotten a, a great uh, groundswell now, you know. The far left, it's not, it's not, you know. Liberals and conservatives have always been able to get along, and um, and and they both believe in free speech and dissent. You know, the left doesn't. You know, um, uh, it, it, they they just don't. And they that's Jerry Seinfeld and uh, Chris Rock won't work college campuses anymore. You know. Um, uh, I, I just read this woman, Ann Coulter, graduated from Cornell, and she went back to Cornell to um, speak, her alma mater. And they, she had to walk off the stage after seven minutes. They were banging, you know, making noise and everything and, and screaming so that she couldn't speak. This is happening to comedians, you know. Uh, you know, the, the, I, I try to talk to them as much as I can, but sometimes I lose my temper. You know, the, the thousands of men and women… Died so we could have the First Amendment, the right to, we right to speak our mind out. We can say whatever we want to say. You you don't have to listen to us. You can turn us off. You can walk out the door, you know. But that's what we have: free speech in this country, uh, the, the the First Amendment. You know the politically correct police. You know, uh, and we don't know who they are, by the way. You know, the woke people, we don't know who they are. We know who the Moose, the Kiwanis, the Elks, the JCs, the B'nai B'rith. We know who, uh, you know, we know the Democrats, the Republicans, the Independents. You know, we know who everybody is, (laughs) but we don't know who they are. And we keep apologizing to them, you know, (laughs) for and, and once they see to me, comedians are the last bastion of freedom of speech. You know, once they start telling us what we must say, we're, their next step is to telling us what we must, you know, what we must must think, you know, how we're supposed to think. They're going to tell us what to say and then what to think, and then we might as well become a communist nation, you
0: know. No, oh, no, it oh, is no. it really just crazy. I'd say some of that craziness was on display this past weekend on uh, Saturday Night Live, uh, where Dave Chappelle was hosting, and there's a little bit of his monologue where he was talking about the Kanye West said, situation. I can say
1: anti-Semitic things.
0: And Adidas can't drop me now. What?
1: Mm. Adidas immediately. <laughs> Ironically, Adidas was founded by Nazis, <laughs> and they were offended. I guess the students surpassed
0: the teacher. Now, uh, Dave Chappelle did a lot of controversial stuff, and it, I didn't get to watch all of his monologue, but he didn't mention the controversy swir- swirling around. His own uh, hosting of Saturday Night Live, where apparently some of the writers on Saturday Night Live actually were either, I don't know if they went through with this, but they were prepared to boycott him because of jokes that he made about trans people in a Netflix special last year. Could you have seen that years ago, Tom, where writers on a comedy show would actually be boycotting um, a comedian because of some jokes that he made in an unrelated stand-up special, I mean, I'm sure that you and Tim Reed as an interracial, early interracial comedy duo had to deal with your fair share of controversy and your fair share of boycotts, but to have the writers on a show boycott the very show that they're working on because they don't like some of the jokes that a comic has made, is this a new era in comedy?
1: Yeah, with the Saturday Night Live used to be anti-establishment, and now they have become the establishment, you know that's you know your late night talk show host Johnny Carson never got into political material because he he said we're a comedy show right. Well, he we're made late fun late of
0: everybody left. Democrats, yeah, Republicans, it, 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 everybody.
1: Late, late night talk show hosts now have become pro- progressive activists. You know, uh, <clears throat> you know that it, 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 it's what they're doing. The comedy I, I have to tell you I was uh, this is my fifty second year of being a stand up comedian. Wow, and I. I I am so glad that I was a comedian in the era and still am a comedian, but in the era that I was a comedian with some of the greatest comedians of the, in the history of America, I wouldn't want to start out being a comedian today. you know I, I wouldn't want to be a comedian in today's environment. It, it, uh, you know for, for <clears throat> again, you know you you don't have to listen to us. you don't have to pay to see us. you can turn us off. you can walk out you can ask for your money back you know but you can't tell anybody what they must say other than you know fire in a crowded theater you know what i mean uh it, it just when tim reed and i were america's first black and white comedy team if they would have seen the material we did they they would run us out of town on a rail <laughs> no. we attacked every stereotype me being white tim being black we talked about all the white stereotypes of blacks and all the black stereotypes of whites, and we did made we made jokes about it now, our whole act wasn 't racial, you know, but we did a lot of stuff that had nothing to do with race at all. but the mere fact that we were on stage having a dialogue together, we were doing what America was not doing you know all over America in nineteen sixty nine when we started out nineteen seventy you know we were just a few years removed from martin luther king being assassinated robert kennedy being assassinated the civil rights movement uh, act was signed in 1964 that was, we were just a few years away from that taking off you know uh, <clears throat> so you know when when we we started out there were riots all over the country there were uh, students were protesting the the vietnam war you know, so in all of America, they're saying, you know what we need? We need more discourse among the races. We need more discourse among the races. You know what they're saying? 40 uh, 52 years later you know what we need more discourse among race.
0: <laughs> <laughs> We're talking with Tom Dreesen uh, a celebrated stand-up comedian who has been in show business by his own admission for over half a century you can check out his website uh, tomdreesen.com I also strongly recommend his book Still Standing there's a ton of great uh, a ton of great stories in there Tom you uh, referenced your your comedy duo with Tim Reed if people haven't seen that or haven't heard that there's some great clips on on uh, on youtube which people can take a look at including this
1: let's change this whole setting here okay all right let's go to 47 and drexel 47 and drexel yeah <laughs> i'm waiting for a bus you're gonna be another black man uh-huh you gonna come up and start a conversation now i'm waiting for the bus you're waiting for the bus yeah. and i'm a brother your brother cool now <laughs> hey, man. Hey, man. You're, fine. you're gonna die of natural causes
0: some black guy in the natural gonna kill you oh. <laughs> It almost seems to me, Tom, that the that comedians today being pressured to shy away from racial humor, it's almost exacerbating racial tensions by uh, kind of pitting different races against one another rather than have people of different races, be they performers or people in the audience, all being prepared to laugh together. Would you agree with that?
1: And <clears throat> I totally agree with that. You know, when when there the, used to be in comedy, they'd say, well, you know, you can't do jokes about Jewish people unless you're Jewish. And you can't do jokes about black people unless you're black. And you can't do jokes about Italians unless you're an Italian, you know, uh, which is utter nonsense. Because when the, when the Jewish comedian goes on stage and starts talking about his family and his mom and dad, and you say, well, I'm not Jewish, but you know what my – my parents were like that, you know, and then you see the black guy talking about things about his life and you say, you know, I'm not black, but, you know, I did things like that or my parents are like that. We find out through humor, we have so much more in common, you know, and and it, it gets down to the basics, you know, uh, you know, but are, do we have cultural differences? Of course we do. Do we have past history differences? Of course we do. You know, if I were to tell you, I, I could tell you that you, you probably know this, Frank, but 90 of America does not know that some of the largest lynchings in America were of Italians. Mm -hmm. They had lynched in in Hansville, Louisiana, in Illinois. 1891.
0: Yeah, Uh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I do wonder, Tom where the line is, right? I mean, uh, there's. It, it seems like um, e- everyone rails against cancel culture until a comedian says something or a performer does something that just goes too far, and then there's calls for boycotts. I mean, we saw this with uh, Kathy Griffin when uh, she was holding the the he- severed head of Donald Trump on a magazine. We saw this with, uh, with Kanye West uh, on uh, his, some of his comments that he made about jews we saw this with dave chappelle with some of the comments that he made about trans people it is i mean how do you know as a performer where the line is these days at what is a cancelable offense
1: well you know today today you don't you don't know they'll create something new every day you know you know it's you know travel at your own risk you know if you're going to go into this precarious business of show business and especially stand up comedy i, I don 't know how many times i 've heard great actors Gregory Peck Kirk Douglas sitting with these guys when I toured with Frank Sinatra that would say i wouldn 't be a stand up comedian. These are brilliant actors mm-hmm. uh, singers. Frank Sinatra had the highest regard for stand up comedians the highest regard he He said it time and time again one time down in Florida the while well, we were doing a big show down in Florida um, that uh, there was a big table of twenty people having dinner, and this woman was. And, you know, the governor's wife was fawning over Frank saying, you know, I don't know how you do that, how you go out there every night and sing songs. And he looked at, I was at the end of the table. He said, he's got the hardest job in show business. Stand-up comedians, that's the toughest job in show business because it is. I mean, but you travel at your own risk when you go into this business of stand-up comedy. You know, you have to decide, you know, what kind of comedian you want to be and then go for it. You know, I personally have always, I just wanted to make everybody laugh. You know, I didn't Mm -hmm. want to make a a specific uh, age group or ethnic group laugh. I've tried to write material that can make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad and the kids laugh, regardless of their ethnicity. You know, um, that's just what I chose, you know, at at the time. But if you're going to be controversial, if you're going to go out there and be controversial, then be prepared, you know, uh, that there are people. Here's what I say. There are people that won't pay to see you, but they should not boycott or, or they should not set set up a group to try to get you out mm-hmm. of the business mm-hmm. you know you have the right to say whatever you want to say you know in our nation you know
0: one of the great uh, one of the great prop comics of all time was gallagher who we lost a few days ago curious if you could share with folks uh, what interactions you might have had with gallagher over the years and what about his humor was so different and so groundbreaking at the time that he started performing
1: what the you know the interesting thing, and I was saying uh, talking to my our friend, my friend David Letterman, the other day, we were talking about Gallagher because we started out. David Letterman and I and Gallagher, uh, we we worked in the same club. There was a little club called Show Business in the Valley. Dave Letterman lived one block from it. A guy named Murray Langston owned the club. He he later became the unknown comedian. And he was uh, an extra on. The, I'm not an extra. He was a, 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 a cast member on the Sonny and Cher show. And he took all of his money and he invested in this club. And in it was Gallagher. You know, Gallagher was one of the guys that was working there. Now Gallagher, Leo Gallagher was his name. He was one of the brightest stand-up comedians I ever met. He could write material that was clever and unique, and it was brilliant. And yet. When he died, his obituary said, the comedian who smashed watermelons, you know, <laughs> that that's what they remembered him for because that's what he did in his act at some point in his act. But he could—he did a whole hour, you know, an hour and a half, and it would be brilliant, clever material. He was an extremely bright guy, but somehow they remembered him for smashing that watermelon more than anything else. You know? Well,
0: do you think that's unfair? Do you think he should have a broader comic legacy?
1: It, it, again, the... the, the That's the risk he took. Mm -hmm. When you are going to you when you're going to do something like that, you might get a, a hook. Sometimes a hook in comedy is really good. You know, if you can come up with a hook, Rodney, I get no respect. We say, oh, Rodney Dangerfield. Can we talk? Oh, that's Joan Rivers. The devil made me do it. Oh, that's Flip Wilson. You know, if if you can find a hook. Comedy—that's terrific. But sometimes that hook also will be something you'll be remembered for forever, whether you like it or not. You know? Right,
0: right. I'm guessing uh, Henny Youngman probably didn't see the first line of his obituary reading "Take my wife, please." Um, yeah. You, uh, you were also in the Navy, served four years in the Navy. I'm curious. We were talking a little bit about the military last hour and uh, how you know how this it can be a character-building experience for certain people. How did you find that humor? served you in the military. Did it help you get through some tough times?
1: Yes, it did. And and, and by the way, I had no idea that I was ever going to be a comedian at that time. You know, I spent four years in the Navy and I served nine months in a Marine Corps unit called NEGDF, Naval Emergency Ground Defense Force. We were trained at Quonset Point, Rhode Island. And and anyhow, so, yeah, I was always the guy that would go around the ship. And and, and, and when I, I served on two aircraft carriers, the USS Tarawa and the USS Essex. And I was always like I was going to tell the latest funny story or the latest joke or to look at the humor side of things. No matter how bad things got, I could somehow look at something and make a joke about it. Uh, and, and I didn't know at the time what I was doing. But today I realized through all the research and everything that's done about humor, how humor is healing and how laughter when a human being laughs. First of all, when you laugh at a comedian or you're laughing at some situation – you're, the brain can't think of two thoughts at the same time, so it's a psychological deterrent. You know, when you're when you're laughing at a comedian, you're not thinking your problems. So it's a psychological deterrent. But now they found out at UCLA they did a lot of research when the human body laughs that endorphins are released from the brain into the bloodstream. And so after a hearty laugh, and you you've laughed so hard and, and tears are running down your eyes, and you go. Oh, and the sense of well-being comes over you after that big laugh. It's because your body's gone through an actual chemical change. So laughter is not only psychologically a deterrent, it's physiologically therapeutic. So therefore, comedians are physicians of the soul. Frank, and you can call me Dr. Dreesen if you'd like.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously, so much of uh, your career has been tied to the career of Frank Sinatra. We've talked to you before. You were actually one of the pallbearers at his funeral. Is there anyone alive today, any entertainer, that could be described as this generation's Frank Sinatra?
1: No, but I would, you know, no one has that incredible following, but I, I did some shows with Michael Buble, and I really think he's an incredible singer and a and a, and a great performer. There was something about Frank Sinatra that, that, he created such excitement with audiences. it was his interpretation of lyrics. You know his music became if you were a Sinatra fan, there's a lot of people that didn't like frank Sinatra, and that's that's the prerogative. but Frank Sinatra was a star for over sixty years at age seventy eight and seventy nine He was filling twenty thousand seat arenas mm. he He sold out in Japan a twenty thousand seat arena at age seventy eight you know, in in Brazil, many many years ago, he sold 175,000 people came to see Frank Sinatra. A lot of rock groups might have done that, but no single performer. So there's there's it's hard to compare his career to anybody else's. Arguably, it's the greatest career show business I've ever known. Because forget about the fact that he was this brilliant, brilliant singer. Maybe arguably the greatest pop singer of all time. You forget he was an actor. Uh, an
0: incredible actor. I mean, you look at From Here to Eternity, The Manchurian Candidate. I mean, even beyond musicals like uh, Guys and Dolls, he was uh, an incredible actor. We've been talking with Tom Dreesen. Tom, we have a lot of listeners in, uh, in Florida because of so many New Yorkers and other folks from around the country that have uh, relocated down there. I know you're performing in uh, Miami on uh, January 28th. What are, what are people going to enjoy if they go to see this show and how can they get tickets?
1: Well, uh, you can go to I think concert. Jeez, I, I should have that information. And uh, I, the, there's a guy named Michael Martucci, uh, who's a wonderful, wonderful singer, and he does. He's got an, a 22-piece orchestra. It's the old Blue Eyes Orchestra. It's a lot of the guys who played with Frank when they were younger guys, and he 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 pays tribute to Frank with this music and the orchestra. And I do stand-up comedy and I do the storytelling of Frank. You know. Uh, and we we worked together in Atlantic City, and it was such a big hit that we we're now going on January twenty eighth. We're going to be at, at Turnberry in Aventura, Florida, and I. I, I, geez, I this is terrible. It's at the J W Marriott. In, in turnberry and on january 28th and, there, you, and tickets are available but don't, I, I forgot i think it's concert i should have had that information oh no
0: well, it's my fault for throwing for throwing that at you, you
1: you can go to my website tomdreason.com
0: tomdreason.com i'm sorry i missed you when you were uh, in atlantic city i heard that it was quite a show and uh, i look forward to seeing you the next time you're uh, you're up in the northeast tom it's always such a treat to talk with you thanks for taking the time
1: you're welcome, Frank. It's good to talk to you.
0: All right. If you want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Tom Dreesen, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800 9222 This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
1: The Other Side of Midnight. midnight.